Hi there. You're listening to Lindisfarne Anglican Church's Sermon Podcast, a place where you can hear God's Word preached if you weren't able to join us at one of our services during the week. My prayer for you today is that as you listen to this message, you'd be challenged, encouraged, and equipped to live as a disciple of Christ in the world. May God richly bless you as you listen to this message today. We are in a season at the moment uh, where one of the great sporting clashes of all times takes place, the Ashes. Uh, And last week, uh, I stayed up very late and watched us lose, uh, even though we won. Uh, But anyway, I I digress. Uh, A great game. I was very uh, tired the next day. I totally got sucked in. Uh, And of course, every year the ashes rolls around. Uh, I don't know if this is true for you, but it, it always makes me think back to Uh, when I was a kid and uh, when I sort of idolised these fellows because they were actually older than me rather than younger than me Uh, and uh, I thought uh, what what great superstars they were and of course one of these fellows was Steve Waugh and Steve Waugh uh, I think he played over 160 tests for Australia he was captain for many Uh, he uh, was one of the greats of the game, uh, and he had this funny little f- habit that he used to do. He had lots of funny little habits, actually, but one that really stuck out in my mind, if you're a cricket fan, you might know it too. Oh, it's already there. Excellent. That's all right. Uh, he used to carry this red rag uh, on him, and uh, he uh, believed that this, this rag gave him good luck and he, he put it in his pocket for the first time uh, in the early 90s and scored 100 and kind of from that moment on uh, he didn't go out to bat without the red rag. And uh, so uh, this deeply held belief b- became sort of superstitious and other people wanted to get their hands on the red rag because they thought maybe it would bring them lucky, lucky powers too. And there's a, there's a bit of a, a folklore story where one player uh, finally got up the guts to ask him from an opposition team for a piece of the red rag. Uh, uh, took, and so he cut a little bit off, gave it to him, and that guy had the worst series of his career. The mysterious red rag. For Steve Waugh, perhaps more of a superstition than a conviction, but nonetheless, here he had this deeply held belief that the red rag brought him good luck and therefore it needed to go in his pocket before he went out to bat. And all of us have convictions. All of us have these deeply held beliefs or principles uh, that, that we know to be true and that we shape our lives around and that we seek to uh, let drive our behaviour uh, and, our, and our actions. And of course, it's actually easier said than done sometimes, isn't it, to live uh, with a life of integrity according to our deeply held convictions, because often, in fact, it's not until perhaps we feel some regret or remorse about a certain situation where we've behaved in a certain way that we actually start to realise perhaps what some of our deeply held convictions are. Why am I feeling bad about this? I thought it would be okay. You know, I'll actually, I'm not happy with uh, the way I've behaved because it, it, it goes against something that I hold deeply. Considering that uh, most of us would say we want to be people of conviction, we want to be people who uh, uh, live out our values and our convictions, uh, it's interesting, isn't it, that probably many of us haven't spent that much time really thinking about what they are. Like if I said, tell me what are the deep convictions upon which you base your life, um, 
you, you would be probably on the rarer side of, of, of humanity if you said, oh, oh that's easy. Uh, it's X, Y, Z uh, and uh, A. Um, and so uh, people don't tend to think too deeply about this. And yet, if we want to be people of integrity, we need to be people of conviction. We need to let our convictions shape our behaviour, shape who we are. And so as Christians... It adds another layer too, because uh, we don't only want to be people who just come up with good ideas and then live according to them. We actually want our co- convictions to be shaped not by tradition or, or culture or reason, but by the scriptures, by God working through his spirit in the Bible to reveal to us what the deep truths of life are and how we should live according to his will. Well, as a diocese and as a local church, we have five stated convictions. And when Richard Condy launched the vision back in 2017, he said this, Convictions are settled beliefs and principles that we know to be true and that ought to drive our actions. Convictions are corrective, challenging our wrong behaviour and taking us on the right path. They are inspirational. The truths we know about God and his mission inspire us to turn towards him. He defines convictions for us and then, and then he sort of outlined what he believed the diocese of convictions uh, ought to be and what we in 2017 uh, agreed were ours too. You probably know them. Here they are. You're like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember those. Right? Jesus Christ is head of the church and he has sent us to make disciples by word, prayer and service supported by fruitful godly leaders, God being our provider and us stewards of his gifts. We are, as you know, heading into our annual meeting. And so in the weeks leading up to it, it's five weeks away, we've got five convictions. Uh, I thought it good for us to spend some time corporately thinking about what it is deep down that drives our decision making as a church. It's good to think about these convictions too because as we heard last week when Stephen was here, uh, we want to be a people who are unified in our faith. And if we uh, can find ourselves aligning with these convictions, I think we're going to find greater unity as we seek to be a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus. And I think as well, there's a chance that you're new since 2017, uh, or you didn't really notice in 2017, or you've just simply forgotten. But you may not be aware that there are actually these five deep theological truths that are are driving the way that I'm trying to lead the parish council, the decisions that they're trying to make, uh, and uh, driving the way we seek to put into that vision that's up on those banners behind us uh, into practice. I hope that as we spend the next month going through these convictions, that they become for us not merely five points on a page, but actually a reflection of a deeply held reality that that we do indeed hold these things to be true. That Jesus is head of the church, that he has sent us to make disciples, that we do that by word, prayer and service, supported by fruitful godly leaders, trusting God as our provider and us being stewards of his gift. Well, we are 
going to take a look today at the first one. Conviction number one, Jesus Christ is head of the church. What does that mean? Well, it means that we can be confident that what we do in this church, uh, uh, we do uh, under the lordship of Christ. That as, uh, if we're seeking to do it in humble and obedient service to him, we're confident that God is working out his sovereign purposes in and through us because he is head of this church. He is the king. But is this a true idea? It's all very well to just state stuff. What does the Bible have to say? Well, we see it everywhere. We saw it in our first reading in Ephesians, verses 22 and 23. God placed all things under his, that is Jesus' feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And if we kept on reading Paul's letters in the New Testament, we would see the idea of Jesus being the head of the church come up time and time again. Uh, You haven't got these references on the outline, but uh, you can scribble them down quickly or I can give them to you later if you want to check. But places like Ephesians 4.15, Ephesians 5.23, 1 Corinthians 11.3, Colossians 1.18, and in a moment we'll see uh, uh, further in Colossians chapter 1, these places where Paul speaks of Jesus Christ as the boss of the church, as the head of the church. But it's not just an idea that Paul came up with. It's actually an idea that Jesus himself speaks of, of his authority and power over and for the church. So if you were to go to places like John 20, 21 or Matthew 10, 1 or Matthew 28, 19, where we'll go next week, you'll see that Uh, As Jesus sends his disciples out in those places on mission, he does so with authority as the head of his people, as the boss, which he says comes directly from the Father. Likewise, when we see uh, the story in Matthew 16 of Peter declaring Jesus to be the Messiah, we see Jesus say these words in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, Jesus says, that you, Peter, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Jesus says, I am going to build my church. I'm going to protect my church for all eternity based on the foundation of those who profess Christ is Lord. Jesus is not setting up the papacy in these verses, as is often thought. He's saying uh, that those who know that I'm the Messiah and who proclaim that and profess that on this rock, I will build my church. And we could dig deeper into any number of passages to get a better understanding of, of how the Bible thinks of Jesus as head of the church. But for uh, time's sake today, let us take a look uh, more uh, deeply at Colossians, our second reading, where Paul outlines the supremacy of Jesus, his lordship over not just the church, but all the world. And we see uh, in that reading that Paul makes three kind of big points about Jesus's importance, his headship, uh, and he makes uh, a suggestion for how we ought to respond to that as well. So let's have a look. Firstly... We see that Jesus, the Son, shows us who God is because he is God. Verse 15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Paul says, you want to worship God? You have to worship Jesus. 
You want to know what God is like? You look at Jesus. You take away Jesus because you don't like the name and you'd rather worship God and you'd rather separate that out from Jesus. You can't do it. You lose God when you get rid of Jesus. Jesus is God. He is how we see who God is and what God is like. And not only that, but Jesus is the creator and sustainer and therefore boss of the world. Paul's second point, Colossians 16 and 17. In him, in Jesus, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. Because Jesus made everything, Paul says, because Jesus sustains everything, he's the boss of everything. He's in control of everything. And we worship Jesus because without him, we are nothing. Nothing, Paul says, happens outside the Lord Jesus' creating and sustaining power. And therefore, he is fully trustworthy and completely able to deliver on his promises to grow the church and to save his people. Jesus is God. He created the world. He sustains it. And Paul says finally he is the head of the church. Verses 18 to 20. He is the head of the body the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile to himself all things. Whether things on earth or things in heaven. By making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is head of the church because of what he's done for the church. Dying on the cross and rising to new life to bring the world back to him. And the church stands apart from the rest of the world, is, is, is different from the rest of the world, because we are the ones who are his body. We are the ones who admit it, that Jesus is in charge, that it's all about him, that without him we are nothing. We are the ones who acknowledge that it is really him who's running the show. It isn't us. And so, if Jesus is God, if he's the creator and sustainer of all things and the head of the church because he's redeemed us and because we serve him, what should our response be? Paul says in verses 21 to 23, we need to hold on to the gospel and serve its proclamation, serve the, the telling of it, the spreading of it. Colossians 1, 21 to 23, once you were alienated God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel this is the gospel that you heard and has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which i paul have become a servant do you realize what jesus has done for you paul lays it out pretty clearly here doesn't he in this passage you were god's enemy but now you have been reconciled 
as Australians, we know something of the immense difficulty about bringing about true reconciliation. It's hard and costly, but God has done the impossible. He has made peace where there was none. He has brought life where there was death. He has brought purity where there was only filth and shame. He has reconciled us to himself. And how did he do this? By dying on the cross. This is the heart of our faith. This is the good news that we are to serve and proclaim because Jesus is king. It was the good news that Paul proclaimed and which Paul served. It's the good news which transforms lives, which is the foundation upon which the church is built as we seek to proclaim that Jesus is Lord because he died so that we might live. Jesus is head of the church. It's good to say, but what does it really mean for us in practice? How does it change our thinking and our behaviour? Well, I want to suggest uh, three ways. Firstly, I want to ask you a, a question. If I said to you today, I want you to draw a picture of the church, what would you do? I know what I would do. I would draw a a rather tall and narrow building with a big cross on the window. That's how I would most, uh, you know, likely draw uh, a picture of, of the church in Lindisfarne if someone asked me to do that. Perhaps you might draw a picture of these lovely stained glass windows, but then you'd remember that you're not an artist and you can't do that. So uh, you'd try something a little bit easier. And they're okay pictures, right? But if that's the first thing that comes to your mind when I say draw a picture of the church, then that's an invitation for you to check your convictions. Because Jesus Christ is not head of a tall, narrow, red brick building on the corner of Amelia and Lincoln Streets in Lindisfarne. He's head of his body, the church, of you and me, the people who gather to worship and serve him. The church is a body, not a building. And if someone said, draw a picture of the church... Instead of drawing four walls with a roof and a cross on the top, we ought to draw a bunch of dodgy stick figures. Faces. The people of God, the body of Christ, who are called to serve the proclamation of the gospel, to serve as Jesus' hands and feet in this world, under his lordship. The church is a body not a building. That's the first thing that the headship of Christ reminds us of. Jesus isn't a real estate mogul. He is the king of his people. Second, I wonder uh, if someone asked you to describe this place, how you would, uh, how, you, how you would conceive of the gathering that you're part of today. Uh, At our nine o'clock service, there are people who've been coming to this church for a long time. 96 years is our record attending parishioner. So there's a little while to go 
for you and I to come close. Some of us are here for our first time today. Some of us have come here from other Anglican churches in other places. Some of us have come from other denominations and find our home here at LA. Whatever the case may be, I think there's a chance that when we think of how we might describe this, we, we're likely to call it my church. This is my church. Let me tell you who's most likely to say that. Me. Uh, I really do sometimes accidentally think that this is my church uh, because God's called me to be uh, the leader here. But of course, this conviction that Jesus Christ is head of the church reminds us that though it's great that we love the church so much we're willing to call it ours, you know, like like we love our, 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 our faithful pet and we say this is my pet or my child or and it's not so much our ownership as our love for the thing that we're expressing it is good and right to sort of describe the church in those terms but it's wrong when we forget that it's not ours certainly not mine it's Jesus's church he is the head he is the one who owns this. Not me, not the parish council, not even the bishop. Jesus. Jesus owns the church. You know why? Because he died for it. He's the one who reconciled us to God. He's the one who created it. He's the one who sustains it. He's the one who empowers us to tell others what good news it is that he died for us. And our job is to respond to his call and to remain faithful to that good news and to proclaim it wherever we can. The church is a body, not a building. The church doesn't belong to me. Finally, this truth that Jesus is head of the church reminds us that as a church, we are called to do what Jesus wants, not what we want. When we remember that God has called us collectively as his body to serve him in his church, then we realise that we are not a people called to placating one another, called to making each other happy. We're called to worship the Lord Jesus in spirit and in truth and to do what he's called us to do. And we'll delve more into what it is that he's called us to do next week when we get to the, uh, our second conviction, sending us to make disciples. But I want to encourage us today to continue to submit to the Lord Jesus, to look to him as our head, and to seek to do everything as individuals and collectively as his church here in Lindisfarne. Let's do everything in humble and obedient service to him, for he is our king. Well, let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, you are indeed head of your church, and we are privileged to be part of your body here in Lindisfarne. We pray, Lord, that you would help each of us to follow you in all we do and say. And Lord, we want to say sorry for the times where 
we've got it wrong, where we've put our own thoughts and needs above yours. We pray, Lord, that you would build this church on the faithful proclamation of the good news. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to be servants of you. And we thank you, Lord, that you love us so much that you'd be willing to die for us. Lord, in response to your great love, we commit to be your servants, just as Paul did. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to bring the good news to more and more people in Lindisfarne and beyond. Amen. Hey there. Thanks so much for listening to this message today. I hope you were encouraged by God as he spoke to you by his Holy Spirit. Please head to our website if you'd like more information about our church, www.lindisfarneanglican.org.au or like us on Facebook by searching Lindisfarne Anglican. We are a church for Lindisfarne, making disciples of Jesus. God bless.